Hello, Symphony Podcast listeners. Uh, before we start this video, this episode number 24, I just wanted to let you know that during the recording of this podcast, we actually had some technical difficulties. Um, there were, we were, you know, we were recording Skype, so the, the connection was really bad this morning. So there's a lot of delays, and, you know, I'm going to try to edit it the best I can. But just letting you know, if there is some jaggedness or some strange editing uh, things, then that's going to be because our connection was bad, and we apologize for that. But hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphonic Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. That's correct. And uh, today is kind of a special episode because today, believe it or not, Andrew, we've been doing this for one year. Well, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be one year since we started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just flies by. Yes, it does. And so this is episode 24, and we're going to be talking about uh, Sergei Prokofiev today and his classical symphony, his symphony number one. So Sergei Prokofiev, um, or Sergei Sergeyevich <laughs> Prokofiev, uh, was born on uh, the 20th, April 23rd, or April 11th in the Old style of 1891. He was born in Sonsovka, Ukraine, in the Russian Empire, and he died on March 5th of 1953 in Moscow, Moscow, Russia, of the USSR. Uh, he is a 20th century Russian and Soviet composer who wrote in a wide range of musical genres, including symphonies, concerti, film music, operas, ballets, and program pieces. Um, so, let's talk about his life like we always do. So, Prokofiev was born into a family of agriculturalists, uh, village life with its best peasant songs, left a permanent imprint on him. His mother, a good pianist, became the gifted young Prokofiev's first mentor in music and arranged trips to the opera in Moscow. A high evaluation was put on the boy's talent by a Moscow composer and teacher, Sergei Taneyev, which actually we talked about him in the, in the last episode, or two episodes ago, we said that he was also Rachmaninoff's teacher and he was also the guy that Rachmaninoff dedicated his second symphony to. Um, so Taneyev recommended the Russian composer uh, Reinhold uh, Gliere to teach Prokofiev. Uh, Gliere would travel to uh, Sontovka uh, in the summer months to become uh, young Sergei's first teacher in theory and composition and to prepare him for entrance into this conservatory at St. Petersburg. Um, the years, uh, the years Prokofiev spent at that, that institution, um, where um, 1904 to 1914, were a period of swift creative growth. Uh, his teachers were struck by his originality, and when he graduated, he was awarded the Anton Rubinstein Prize in piano for a brilliant performance of his own first large-scale work, which is his piano concerto number one in D flat major. Yeah, his experiences at the at the conservatory were pretty helpful for him. I mean, I mean. His experiences um, there, uh, they give him a firm foundation in the academic fundamentals of music. But he did uh, have this really interesting uh, bent towards trying to do something new. Of course, most modernists do, but he was one of those modernists. His enthusiasms were supported by progressive circles advocating musical renewal uh, in, there in Russia. This is all before the revolution. Uh, so Prokofiev's first public appearance as a pianist took place in 1908 at a concert series called Evenings of Contemporary Music, which was sponsored by, um, uh, sponsored by one of his uh, circles over there in St. Petersburg. A little later, he met with a friendly sympathy in a similar uh, circle in Moscow, which helped him to make his first appearances as a composer at the Moscow summer symphony seasons of uh, 1911 and 1912. 
Uh, again, this is all before the Russian Revolution, the Soviets and all that stuff. So he's still just doing this little old Russian pre-Downton Abbey thing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Prokofiev's musical talent developed rapidly. He studied the compositions of Igor Stravinsky, a uh, well-known Russian composer that uh, uh, we talk about frequently. Uh, he mm -hmm. particularly studied the early ballets, but maintained a critical attitude towards his countrymen's brilliant innovations. He was always very interested in, in knowing what Stravinsky was doing and how to not do those things uh, in mm -hmm. a new way. So, uh, so he had contacts with the uh, then new currents in uh, theater, poetry, and painting, uh, which also played an important role in Prokofiev's development. Uh, he, he was attracted by the work of the modernist Russian poets. Uh, he was attracted by modernist paintings, uh, uh, such as the, the Russian followers of Paul Cézanne and uh, Pablo Picasso, you know, the, the very modernist visual artists, and by the theatrical mm -hmm. ideas of Sievolod uh, Miyahmarold, who whose early whose uh, experimental productions were directed against uh, sort of this uh, this idea of uh, of naturalism, it's always trying mm -hmm. to make something not real. In 1914, Prokofiev mm -hmm. became acquainted with the great ballet impresario Sergei Diaghilev, you know, the the guy that premiered Bride of Spring and all that stuff. Uh, this guy uh, mm -hmm. became one of the most influential advisors of Prokofiev for the next decade and a half. You know, so Diaghilev had his hands in, in many Russian affairs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in French affairs as well, like Debussy and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So after the, after the death of his father in 1910, Prokofiev lived under more difficult material conditions, uh, though his mother provided for him uh, for his continuing studies. On the eve of World War I, he visited London and Paris to acquaint himself with the newest trends in art. Uh, the tense pre-storm atmosphere uh, that pervaded Russia sharpened in him a feeling of skepticism, of disbelief in romantic ideals, but did not shake his essentially healthy outlook on life. Except from war mobilization as the only son of a widow, uh, Prokofiev continued to perfect his musicianship on the organ and, and appear in concerts in the capital and elsewhere. The pre-revolutionary period of Prokofiev's work uh, was marked by intense exploration. The harmonic uh, thought and design of his work grew more and more complicated. Prokofiev uh, wrote the ballet Alla and Loli of, in 1914 on themes of ancient Slav mythology uh, for Diaghilev, who actually rejected it. <laughs> Consequently, uh, Prokofiev reworked the music into the uh, Scythian suite for orchestra. Uh, its premiere in 1916 caused a scandal, uh, but was the culmination of his career in Petrograd, uh, back th which is nowadays St. Petersburg. Uh, the ballet, The Tale of the Buffoon, who outjested seven buffoons, uh, who uh, written in 1915 but reworked as just the buffoon uh, between 1915 and 1920, also commissioned by Diaghilev, was based on a folk tale. Uh, it served as a stimulus for Prokofiev's searching experiments in the renewal of Russian music. Despite Diaghilev's assertion of the priority of ballet over opera, which he considered a dying genre, Prokofiev was active in the field of opera. Um, following the immature Madalena, written between 1911 and 1913, he composed The Gambler. Uh, he, he wrote that uh, between 1915 and 1916, which is a brilliant and dynamic adaptation of the novella by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, and then, continuing the operatic tradition of Mozarsky, Prokofiev skillfully combines subtle, subtle lyricism, uh, satiric malice, narrative precision, and dramatic impact. 
During this period, Prokofiev achieved a great recognition for his two first piano concerto, the one-movement concerto in D-flat major of 1911 and the dramatic four-movement concerto in G minor of 1913. Yeah, so <clears throat> the year 1917, uh, the year of two Russian revolutions, was actually very productive for Prokofiev. Uh, when Tsar Nicholas II was overthrown in February of 1917, Prokofiev was in Petrograd uh, quite happy about the whole deal. Um, as if inspired by feelings of social and national renewal, he wrote within one year an immense quantity of new music. He composed two sonatas, the Violin Concerto No. 1 in D major, um, the Classical Symphony, the choral work uh, 7, they are 7. He began the Magnificent Piano Concerto No. 3 in C major, and he planned a new opera, The Love for Three Oranges, after the, a comedy tale by the 18th century Italian dramatist Carlo Gozzi, as translated and adapted by Meyerhold. In the summer of 1917, Prokofiev was included in the Council of Workers in the Arts, which led Russia's left wing of artistic activity. But for almost nine months, he was stranded in the Caucasus Mountains, cut off from Petrograd by the Civil War. Only in the spring of 1918 did he succeed in returning there. So in the difficult circumstances of these years, he did conclude that music had no place in the Council's activities, and he decided to leave Russia temporarily to undertake a concert tour abroad. Uh, so, with official sanction, Prokofiev traveled over the difficult route to, through Siberia, where civil strife was raging. So things, so he was pretty active. I mean, just imagine, the, in one year, you know, composing all of that stuff. And, and, and granted, during the year of the, one of the Russian revolutions, two of the Russian revolutions, the Bolsheviks, and just creating all this music, quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next decade and a half are commonly called the foreign period of Prokofiev's work uh, for a number of reasons. Mainly the continued blockade of the Soviet Union, he could not return at once to his homeland. Nevertheless, he did not lose touch with Russia. Uh, the first five years of Prokofiev's life abroad are usually characterized as the years of wandering. Um, on the way from uh, Vladivostok to San Francisco, in the summer of 1918, he gave several concerts in Tokyo and Yokohama. In New York City, uh, the sensational piano recitals of the Bolshevik pianist evoked both delight and denunciation. The composer had entered uh, to the Chicago Opera Association, where he was giving a commission for a comic opera. The conductor and the producer of the opera, both Italian, uh, gladly backed the idea of an opera on the Gozzi plot. Accordingly, the Love for Three Oranges was completed in 1919, uh, though it was not produced until 1921. Uh, within a few years, the opera was also produced with immense success on the stages of the Soviet Union as well as in Western Europe. So, yeah, so in America, Prokofiev met a younger sister of Spanish extraction, uh, Lina Juvera, uh, who eventually became his wife and the mother of two of his sons, uh, Sviatoslav and Oleg. Uh, not finding continuing support in the United States, the composer set out in the spring of 1924 Paris for meetings with Yagilev and the conductor Serge Kusevitsky. They soon secured from him wide recognition in the most important Western European musical centers. The production of The Buffoon by Diaghilev's ba ballet troupe in Paris and London in 1921 and the Paris premiere of, his, uh, of, of the Scythian Suite in uh, 1921 and that of uh, Seven They Are Seven in 1924 evoked enormous interest consolidating his reputation as a brilliant innovator. People loved to see the way that ways that he was changing things up. So the successful performance of his piano concerto number no. three in 1921 which he completed in France uh, also marked one of the peaks of Prokofiev's dynamic national style. 
so I should say that his uh, uh, Olek is the one whose son, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Olek's son, who is Gabriel Prokofiev, the guy that is still writing music. Um, and still, uh, mm -hmm. He just wrote a turntable concerto for the BBC Proms. It was uh, pretty well received. He came here mm -hmm. to LSU a few weeks ago. It seemed like a pretty swell fellow. Uh, so during 1922 through 1923, Prokofiev spent more than a year and a half in southern Germany, in the Bavarian town of Ettal. Uh, resting after fatiguing premieres and reviewing the course of his creative path, he prepared many of his compositions for the printer. Uh, he also continued to work on the opera The Flaming Angel, uh, after a story by the contemporary Russian author Valery Brusov. Uh, the opera, which required uh, many years of work, uh, that is, he worked from 1919 through 27, uh, this opera did not find a producer within Prokofiev's lifetime. It was only after he died that that perceived its premiere. And it's the same thing with, um, I mean, there, there are several little pieces of Prokofiev's that never quite made it to performance until long after his life. Uh, mm -hmm. he, over here in, at LSU, we were able to premiere his, um, the sketches of a sixth piano concerto, uh, and one work, mm -hmm. Music for Athletes, which, hadn't, uh, which had not been performed since it was used for the first time back in the 30s. It was kind of fun to, to pull out music from this guy. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, and I, I really like that turntable concerto. Um, when I heard it, you know, I it, somebody posted on Facebook, you know, a couple of years ago, and I decided to listen to it, uh, you know, the one by, by Gabriel Prokofiev, and I really liked that, that one. That piece is really interesting. That's very fun. His bass drum concerto is pretty impressive as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, meanwhile, Prokofiev, uninterested in the musical activity in Germany, settled in Paris in the autumn of 1923. There, he was in close touch with progressive French musical figures, such as the composer Poulenc and Honegger, while continuing his own intensive creative activity. Uh, vexed by criticisms of his melodically uh, lucid violin concerto number no. one, which had its premiere in Paris in 1923, he addressed himself to a search for a more avant-garde style. These tendencies appeared in several compositions of the earlier uh, of the early 1920s, including the Epic Symphony number no. two in D minor, commis commissioned by Kusevitsky. Uh, its intense dramatic quality and its striking sense of proportion are also found in the Symphony No. 3 in C minor of 1928, based on thematic material from the opera The Flaming Angel. In close col collaboration with Diaghilev, Prokofiev created uh, new one-act ballets, uh, like Le Pas d'Azier, performed in 1927, and The Prodigal Son, performed in 1929. Uh, Le Pas d'Azier had a sensational success in Paris and London, thanks to its original staging and bold evo uh, evocation of images of Soviet Russia at the beginning of the 1920s, with its economic desolation and the beginnings of industrialization. The, the Prodigal Son uh, had a lofty biblical theme and music that was exquisitely lyrical. Uh, it reflects an emotional relaxation and a clarification of style that are also seen in the string quartet number no. one in B minor of 1930, in the sonata for two violins in C major of 1932, and in the ballet on the Dnieper uh, of 1932. Sorry. So in 1927, Prokofiev toured the Soviet Union and was rapturously received by the Soviet public as a world-renowned Russian musician revolutionary. Uh, while there, he was drinking his old associations with the innovative theatrical producer Meyer Hold, who helped him in a basic revision of the opera The Gambler, uh, which got produced in 1929 in Brussels. 
Prokofiev, Belgique. Uh, during the 1920s and early 30s, Prokofiev toured with immense success as a pianist in the great uh, musical centers of Western Europe and the United States. His U.S. tours in 1925 and 30 and 33 were attended with uh, great success, brought him lots of new commissions, such as the Symphony No. 4 in C major, uh, which incorporated some of the musical material of the Prodigal Son in 1930. Uh, for the 50th anniversary of the Boston Symphony, and uh, that was what that was written for, uh, String Quartet No. 1 was commissioned by the Library of Congress. He wrote uh, the Piano Concertos No. 4 and 5 uh, uh, in 1931 for the left hand and uh, 1932 for both hands. Um, uh, those were both done. They, they demonstrated a new his bent for impulsiveness and virtuoso brilliance. His piano music is actually extraordinary. It treats the piano as a percussion instrument. It's, it's pretty impressive stuff. It is a percussion instrument, but it's just it's very very um, mm -hmm. uh, driving, very train-like music. Really fun stuff. So uh, let's talk then about his Soviet period. Now that we've uh, spent some time on his pre-revolutionary period, the, the Soviet period. Uh, although he enjoyed material well-being, success with the public, and contact with outstanding figures of Western culture, Prokofiev increasingly missed his homeland. He was a person who was always very, very much in love with, um, uh, with his uh, Soviet roots. I mean, he was very fond of the, the revolution having happened. I'm not sure exactly how he felt about uh, murdering the Tsarist family, but he seemed pretty chill with uh, the idea of uh, mm -hmm. Soviet communism. So visits to the Soviet Union in 1927 and 29 and 32 led him to conclude that uh, led him to end his uh, his foreign obligations and, uh, and caused him to return to Moscow once and for all. Uh, this this move really confused a lot of people who think that who thought at the time that Soviet uh, life that Soviet the Soviet quality of life probably wasn't that good, but it's something that he liked. You know, it's something that he wanted to go back to. Uh, for all we can tell, unless he was forced by some secret military police, for which we could never know. Uh, anyway, from 1933 to 1935, the composer gradually accustomed himself to the new conditions and became one of the leading figures of Soviet culture. He was huge. Um, granted, he wasn't huge enough to warrant a, a big funeral, because, well, like we'll mention in a few minutes, he did die the same day as Joseph Stalin. Um, but in any case, he finally closed his Paris apartment in 1936 and made his last Western tour in 1938. And the two decades const uh, constituting uh, the Soviet period of Prokofiev's work, which is 1933 through 53, um, a lot of his, uh, his arts, uh, realistic and epical traits, became more th uh, clearly defined. Uh, the synthesis of traditional tonal and melodic means with the stylistic innovations of 20th century music was more fully realized. He was sort of this uh, um, robocop, modern and traditional composer, which I thought I've always been really heavily enjoyed. I think most people enjoy his music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the years preceding World War II, Prokofiev created a number of classical masterpieces. This included his Violin Concerto No. 2 in G minor of 1935 and the ballet Romeo and Juliet, uh, written between 1935 and 36. Uh, his work in theater and the cinema gave rise to a number of charming programmatic suites, such as the uh, Lieutenant Kise suite of 1934, the Egyptian Night Suite uh, of 1934 uh, as well, and the Symphonic Children's uh, Tale, Peter and the Wolf of 1936. Um, and, you know, Peter and the Wolf is another one of his really famous compositions that, you know, uses a, a narrator with the orchestra uh, to, you know, to help with the, with the, with the story. And, of most course, as a flute player... Most famous one. I mean, it's, uh, it's what made Prokofiev a household name in the United States. 
Yeah, super famous piece. And of course, as a flute player, I have to mention, you know, the flute solo here in Peter and the Wolf, one of the most. Um, it's a very difficult flute solo, of course. It's a, one of the most famous flute solos uh, in the repertoire that, of course, every flute player needs to know. It's a great, you know, because the flute player represents the bird in the story. So it's going to be a really hard, hard solo. Okay. <laughs> so turning to opera, he cast in the form of a contemporary drama of folk life, uh, his Semyon Kotko. Uh, depicting events of the Civil War in the Ukraine in 1939. This, this piece is from 1939. Uh, the basis of the brilliantly modernized opera Bufa, uh, betrothal in a monastery, composed in 1940 but produced in 1946, was the play The Duena uh, by the 18th century British dramatist uh, Richard uh, Brinsley Sheridan. Uh, testing his powers in other genres, he composed the monumental cantata for the 20th anniversary of the October Revolution in 1937 uh, on the text by Karl Marx, Lenin and Stalin, and also the cantata The Toast of 1939, composed for actually Stalin's uh, 60th birthday. Man, we need to try that cantata out at school, that'd be fun to sing. Yeah. <laughs> Words of Joseph <laughs> Stalin. <laughs> Why not, right? What could go wrong? So on his last trip abroad, Prokofiev visited Hollywood, where he studied the technical problems of the sound film, uh, of, of a film scoring, uh, which is uh, what he learned was applied brilliantly in the striking national music for Sergei Eisenstein's film Alexander Nevsky. Uh, his, his Alexander Nevsky is a hugely popular work. Um, this depicted mm -hmm. the heroic Russian struggle against the Teutonic Knights in the 13th century. Uh, and, and so Prokofiev later wrote a cantata called Alexander Nevsky, based entirely on the music of the film. It's just a very well-known work uh, here in Baton Rouge. The mm -hmm. Baton Rouge uh, Symphony Chorus uh, just did that piece about uh, three or four years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the conductor called it sort of a Mona Lisa in music. And just a very, uh, very well-known work. So one of the summits of mm -hmm. Prokofiev's art was the production of his ballet uh, Romeo and Juliet in Ningrad uh, with uh, Galina Ulanova in the leading role. Throughout the 1930s, Prokofiev took part in the organizational work of the Composers Union. He made appearances as conductor and as pianist and traveled much throughout the country. Uh, this, this work, Romeo and Juliet, by the way, is just uh, fantastically well known. It's probably his second best known piece other than yeah. um, uh, Peter and the Wolf. People know the, the the dance of the knights, the bum 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 has this really well-known motive mm -hmm. in it that it, it, it comes up a lot in pop culture. Conan O'Brien used it uh, years ago whenever there was an episode where he was playing King of the Hill, King of the Mountain, with some people in the snow in New York City. Just very good, aggressive music. Interesting that actually in my music appreciation class we're actually studying uh, music films right now and you know we're, that's what I'm teaching right now so we actually just were talking about this piece the Alex, Alexander Nevsky um, composition which is really really good it's a fantastic work too. <laughs> well yeah I, I just taught for Kofi if I just substitute taught for one of the music appreciation teachers here and just taught, <laughs> taught for Kofi last <laughs> Monday so it's, it's fresh in my mind as well. Yeah. So on the eve of World War II, he left his wife and sons for poet Mira Mendelssohn, who became his second common-law wife. The war sharpened Prokofiev's national and patriotic feelings. Regardless of the difficulties of the war years, he composed with remarkable diligence, even when the evacuation of Moscow in 1941 made it necessary for him to move from one place to another until he was able to return in 1944. So from the first days of the war, the composer's attention was centered on a very large-scale operatic project. 
this was an opera based on Leo Tolstoy's novel War and Peace. He was fascinated by the parallels between 1812, when Russia crushed Napoleon's invasion, and the then current situation. Uh, the first version of the opera was completed by the summer of 1942, but subsequently the work was fundamentally revised, which is a task that occupied more than 10 years of intensive work. Those who heard it were struck both by the immense scale of the opera, which is 13 scenes with more than 60 characters. I don't know if you're used to having anything with 60 characters, not even the Super Nintendo uh, range of role-playing <laughs> games had 60 characters. I mean, come on, this Final Fantasy VI had, had like, you know, 20 characters, and that was, seemed like a lot of characters. Um, anyway, it had a great blend of epic narrative with lyrical scenes depicting the personal destinies of the major characters. Uh, his increasing predilection for national epical imagery is manifested in the heroic majesty of the Fifth Symphony in B-flat major, which he wrote in 1944. Uh, this is all, again, still in his big Soviet period, uh, which is his entire last part of his life. And in the music uh, for Eisenstein's two-part film, Ivan the Terrible, uh, which was made in 1944 and 48, part one and part two, respectively. Uh, living in the Caucasus and Central Asia and in the Urals, uh, the composer was everywhere and interested in folklore, an interest that was reflected in the second string quartet in F major, which he wrote in 1941, on uh, Kabardian and Balkar themes, and in the, proje in the projected comic opera uh, Khan Buzai, which he never completed, uh, based on, I'm sure, uh, uh, one of the Khans. Uh, it was on the theme, no, I'm kidding, it was, it's on themes of, of Kazakh folk tales. If you're familiar at all with Kazakh culture, you know, the word Kazakh is really hard to pronounce. Uh, anyway, uh, documents of those troubled days are three piano sonatas, uh, number six, uh, number seven, and number eight, which were written in 1940, 42, and 44, respectively. Uh, these are striking in the dramatic conflict of their images and in their irrepressible dynamism. Just, just, just fantastically well-written music. Um, just wonderfully... Mm -hmm. uh, very explosive. Well, uh, if you're going to think Prokofiev, think fireworks. Think a factory that manufactures yeah. fireworks. <laughs> and you have <laughs> Prokofiev in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, overwork was fatal for the composer's health and was the stress he suffered in 1948 when, along with other Soviet composers, he was censored by the Central Committee uh, of the Soviet Communist Party for formalism. Uh, during the last years of his life, Prokofiev seldom left his villa in a suburb of Moscow. Uh, his, openly, uh, his, his propensity for innovation, however, is still evident in such important works as the Symphony No. 6 in E-flat minor, uh, written between 45 and 47, which is laden with uh, reminiscence of the tragedies of the war uh, just passed. The Sinfonia Concerto for Cello and Orchestra in E minor, written be between 1950 and 1952, uh, composed with consultation from the conductor and cellist uh, Mislav Rostropovich, of course, probably one of the most famous you know, cellists of the 20th century, maybe ever. Um, and the Violin Sonata in, and in the, he also wrote the Violin Sonata in F minor, uh, written between 38 and 46, uh, dedicated to the violinist David Oistark. Um, which is laden with Russian folk imagery. Just as in earlier years, the composer devoted the greatest part of his energy to musical theater, as in the opera, The Story of a Real Man, written between 47 and 48, the ballet, The Stone Flower, 48, 50, and the oratorio on guard for peace, written in 1950. 
The Lyrical Symphony No. 7 in C-sharp minor, written between 51 and 52, was the composer's swan song, his last, his last composition. Um, one thing, you know, I forgot to mention when we were talking about the, you know, the flute and the flute solos of Peter and the Wolf. Also, uh, Prokofiev has this one really famous uh, sonata that both violinists and flute players, um, uh, you know, perform really often. And this is one of my favorite sonatas ever written. This Prokofiev flute sonata is incredible. It's beautiful, extremely beautiful. Beautiful. I really like that piece. Just wanted to mention it in case you know the listeners haven't heard that piece. Totally listen to. You should totally listen to that that sonata. <laughs> so in 1953, Sergei Prokofiev died. He died of uh, suddenly. He died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. On his work table, there remained a pile of unfinished compositions, including sketches for a sixth piano concerto for two pianos, which luckily, which we uh, just had. Uh, performed here at LSU last uh, last month at the Prokofiev Symposium, really big, fun international event where we had um, a lot of the Prokofiev family, I think Oleg's family, uh, the the English side, uh, and uh, a tenth and an eleventh piano sonata were also on the table, as well as a solo uh, cello sonata. Uh, the the subsequent years saw a rapid growth of his popularity in the Soviet Union and abroad, and in 1957, he was posthumously awarded the highest honor given in the Soviet Union, which is the uh, Lenin Prize, uh, from, you know, named after Vladimir Lenin, the man whose body is still pretty well preserved over there in a nice glass box, uh, for his Symphony Number no. 7. Uh, just a very, very well appreciated uh, Soviet composer. I mean, this is one that people on both sides of the ocean seem to like pretty well even though the Americans would have probably liked if he hadn't gone back to the Soviet Union, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. part of his story. Yeah, yeah. So we arrive at the piece of the day. Today is going to be his first symphony, also also called a classical symphony. Um, and the composer uh, himself dubbed his symphony classical for three reasons. First, because it was a simple piece. Second, just for fun, to tease the geese, as he put it. And third, hoping that it will become a repertory staple or, you know, a classic. Um, and on the last point, Prokofiev uh, passed with flying colors forever since its premiere on April 21st of 1918 in Petrograd, you know, back uh, today, nowadays St. Petersburg, it has become one of his two or three most popular works and one of the most frequently played symphonies of the 20th century. Prokofiev's achievement in writing a symphony that sounds both classical and of its time is striking. Again and again, he comes up with uh, a fresh takes on the most standard classical formulae. The days during which Prokofiev wrote his first symphony, which was actually his first numbered published symphony, uh, only two student works preceded it, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, these days were anything but lighthearted, joyous, carefree. Uh, these are all qualities that one can find in the classical symphony. Uh, the revolution of 1917 was in high gear, and Prokofiev was actually dodging bullets in the streets of Pietrograd. Uh, <laughs> exempt from military service, he retired to the quiet countryside to escape the tension and danger of the city and to write his escapist symphony, this, this classical work. Uh, he avowed purpose, no, sorry, his avowed purpose was to compose for the first time in his career a work written entirely without the aid of a piano, to try things out. Just, just for giggles, um, mm -hmm. and that's that's sort of the, the Berliozian technique, you know, <laughs> going at it without sketching it out on one of these contrived little stainless, these giant cast iron piano monstrosities. Uh, the symphony is scored for the classical uh, late Haydn slash Mozart orchestra of pairs of flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, horns, and trumpets plus strings. 
The only concession to the 20th century is the use of three timpani rather than two. But otherwise, this piece uh, <clears throat> could be played uh, on in, in an orchestra if you were to travel back in time to Haydn's day and hang out in Esterhazy and pull out this score and see what happens. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. <clears throat> And actually, another I, I see uh, a resemblance here. We've talked about a piece that kind of has the same motives. We talked about Von Williams' Fifth Symphony, you know, no, sorry, Von, yeah, Von Williams' Fifth Symphony, and we said that that, you know, he, Von Williams wrote that piece when he was, you know, in the middle of the war, uh, a work that's escapist, right? Trying to forget about the war and think about, you know, countryside or, you know, the lack of, of uh, war, right? The same thing is, is happening in this symphony. In the middle of the war, Prokofiev is writing a piece that's, that, you know, is escapist too. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> so, the very opening chord is an 18th century gesture, uh, a premier coup d'achet, a big full chord for all the strings with each player striking two or three pitches at, one, at once. Uh, we recognize uh, from the beginning that this is going to be a work of youthful vitality, spontaneity, sparkling humor, and transparent textures. Prokofiev liked unexpected twists and turns of harmony as much as Haydn did. But although the classical symphony is an affectionate homage to the world of Haydn, it is no mere imitation. Already in the 11th bar, for example, the key changes to C major, a step down from the home key of D. A simple enough move in itself, but hardly one an 18th century composer would have made. Uh, the second theme is pure rococo, uh, a mincing, dainty little affair played softly by first violins. Um, the exposition is not repeated, and after a pause, the development begins the working out of both themes. Prokofiev was another surprise. Ha Prokofiev has another surprise in store for the recapitulation, which begins begins in the wrong key of C, uh, a false recapitulation, a la Haydn is, is suggested, uh, before moving into the home key of D. So we see this, you know, mixing of styles here, of, you know, classical styles and other, you know, 20th century, more avant-garde styles. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Stravinsky's Pulcinella. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. Very, very neoclassical. Ne neoclassical, yes. Prokofiev continues to poke fun at the 18th century in the Larghetto movement, uh, the next movement. Uh, this movement which follows, uh, this is a sort of a study in elegance and wit, which is, you know, what we expect in the classical era. It's uh, free from the kind of uh, profundity and soul-searching that people would expect from symphonies by Tchaikovsky and Akhmaninov. These, uh, uh, these symphonic slow movements typically were a little more romantic in those days, but, you know, by Prokofiev's time, he thought it was time to have some fun in the classical era. So as the introductory mm -hmm. bars are a setup for a gentle, simple theme, but the violin theme is too high in range for a Haydn work, elegant and supple though it is. Uh, in fact, the work is widely considered to be the ultimate test for any violin section. It's both very virtuosic and just very exposed. You have, if you play a violin in this piece, um, be prepared to get every note just spot on. Yes, uh, yes. You cannot hide in the section. <laughs> a contrasting episode of bassoons and pizzicato strings in intrudes twice, uh, and the movement ends with the accompaniment pattern that introduced it. So it's a nice, happy little uh, slow movement, third, second movement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a very hard, hard passage for the first violin. And, you know, because, you know, most string players, you know, since there's so many of them, they can easily hide, you know, they can just kind of fake the runs and things like that. But when you're so high and so exposed, you know, you have to actually practice. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. It is believed that Prokofiev, so we're moving to the third moment. It is believed that Prokofiev composed the third moment, a rustic gavotte uh, marked the non troppo allegro first, possibly as early as uh, 1913. Um, the gavotte was an early 18th century dance form, replacing the more customary minuet in a symphony. It is, it is one of the shortest movements in the symphonic repertory, lasting only two minutes, about, about one-fifth the length of the scherzo of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. Uh, uh, slight it may be, but Prokofiev clearly had a soft spot for it, and later recycled and expanded version in his ballet Romeo and Juliet in 1935. And actually some conductors import the latter longer version from the ballet into this symphony, while others think the concise original is more in the spirit of the whole work. This moment has witty startling shift of harmony and deliberately awkward phrases, which add to the charm of the music. Uh, the central trio features uh, the woodwind section over a drone effect in the string, strings and timpani. And then on to the last part. The finale rushes along with brilliance and Haydn-esque exuberance. Uh, all of these humorous twists and turns are everywhere, such as the warbling woodwinds and the sudden wrenches into new unexpected keys. The Prokofiev's breezy finale is a lightly worn virtuoso display piece for both the orchestra and the composer. And perhaps as a result of his breaking himself of his dependence on the piano, his instrumental writing here seems to concisely uh, take the musicians to the edge of what is possible. Uh, likewise, the musical jokes fly fast and furious, but always with a sense of sly understatement. Um, Haydn would have approved, uh, I certainly think. Uh, uh, Jonathan Kramer, a former annotator for the Cincinnati Symphony, comments, quote, no successful musical joke is merely funny. Beneath the surface of the classical symphony lies an elegance and the humanity that go beyond the work's gentle mockery. Otherwise, how could we return to it again and again? There is something both enduring and endearing behind the classical symphony's parody of classicism." Unquote. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying is that, um, that there is more to it than that, than that it is funny. And I think that's true of a lot of this stuff. Like, I mean, sure, music should be delightful, um, in classical, the classical idiom is a delightful idiom. That's, I think, what they're mm -hmm. going for. Um, yeah. I think what Prokofiev is going for is something similar, just to delight his audience. I'm not entirely sure that he's making fun of the classical era. I think he's borrowing it. He's just, yeah. um, you know, because the, the classical era is full of these, these light gestures and um, yeah, very elegant moments. Balance. Yeah. yeah. It's about doing things well. Is all classicism is about. Exactly. Yeah, um, and let's see. Well, this was an interesting episode, you know, because the uh, you know the audience doesn't know, but we've had some really bad connection problems today, and it's oh. like the delay. I mean, I sometimes you broke you broke out. I couldn't hear what you were saying. So, um, I mean, we apologize if there is anything weird in the edit in in the edit you know in the edit process that I'm gonna do. But that's okay. We'll make it work. That's almost like a few hours, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. But well, this is our anniversary episode, and so this is this is gonna begin what I'm gonna call season two of Symphony Podcast. And um, uh, I don't know. Also, I I have moved all the videos from my personal channel to a new uh, YouTube channel, which is the Symphony Podcast channel, and that's just gonna make things easier. You know, instead of having to, to go to my videos to get to the Symphony Podcast, or or to go to the Symphony Podcast to get to my videos, then we have two separate uh, channels, and that's gonna make things a little more organized. Um, sure. But of course, you can still find us on iTunes. You can still find us on YouTube. It's gonna be fine. No problems there. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Prokofiev today, Andrew? I think I'm all set. 
All right, great. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Symphonia Podcast. And thank you for all of us that have been with us for this uh, year of podcast. And of course, we're going to continue doing it as much uh, as long as we can. <laughs> all right. Yeah, boy. Uh, and until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Oh, man, that delay was bad. <laughs> it's only for on my side the delay is only about um, three to four seconds, which is pretty yeah. substantial. But uh, yeah. there were some points <laughs> in the podcast where the delay was around uh, eight to ten seconds. But yeah, uh, it should be interesting okay. editing work for you. Uh, you might yeah, have to edit I'll... the video a lot, which is my well, but for you. maybe a little bit, but at least we got through it, and is I mean it's gonna work fine. <laughs> yeah.